nigga live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. Winning game four, at least pride-wise, made me feel good because you don't ever want to get swept. I'm indifferent to him, whether or not he signs it. I'll be uh, hitting Milwaukee for the next five years. If you ask me, can the Bucks win game five? I put it at 40% confidence, yes. To think that, that a season is championship or bust is, is um, certainly not the way we've approached it. At this point, we don't know what's going to happen. You can get game six, you can steal it. Championship or bust. Winning game six and seven. Championship or bust. I don't think they're going to win the whole series, but... There is no enjoyment with this team. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Brew Who Podcast. As you can tell, this is not Adam Paris, who would normally do this hosting duties, and he is the co-managing editor of Brew Hoop. Adam is deciding to be a good husband, and honestly, after the week that happened, I don't blame him for doing that. But I'm Kyle Carr, and joining me as always is my good friend, Riley Feldman. Riley, how's it going? I'm doing okay. We we had a leak downstairs like a week ago, and... I was a little bit concerned because I was like, well, that seems somewhat major, but it was on the same day that our neighbors were getting married. So I was like, well, we don't want to bother them and be like, oh, hey, there's a leak in the basement. So we left it be for a week. And then I called our landlord today. I was like, hey, there's a leak downstairs. I went down there today. There's no leak anymore. So I don't know if I'm crazy. I don't know if that's just a cold weather thing, but that's that's what's occupying my mind right now. So I'm a little bit torn between everybody thinking I'm a psycho versus being happy that there's no leak. But besides that, a nice win to finish the bad five-game losing streak. The Bucks, they're back in back in the W column. So overall, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I can't complain too much. All of my soccer teams suck. So you know what? That's it is what it is. <laughs> um otherwise, my wife has started watching Married at First Sight. And that is quite the TV show, TV reality show. It's two people that they literally get married without meeting that person. It's That's... interesting. I don't, I could not picture anyone doing it. Like if I knew someone that did it, I would have to both make fun of them and wonder, what are you thinking? Is it that show um, where like they, they meet like they're in separate rooms next to each other. There was like a Netflix show where it was like there was a whole bunch of couples and it was like you go and you like talk to the person without seeing them. I don't know if it's like married in 90 days or something. Do you know what Sean 90 Day about? Fiance, yeah. Okay, all right. That's yeah. that's the one where like, oh, you don't see the person. And then before you even see them, you like talk to them, get to know them. And you're like, would you want to marry this person or whatever? I think Catherine was into this. I don't know if it's a similar concept or not. So is it just totally out of it's... the blue, no meeting whatsoever? Yeah, you literally, like, they kind of felt this profile, they match you with someone, and you just prepare for a wedding. Like, you don't know who the person is, you don't know anything about them, you just get there, and you're married. Like, you literally, the first time you're meeting them is, like, at the altar. It is wild, and then they have to, like, try and figure out after, I forgot how many, how much time, after some time, they have to decide if they want to stay married, or if they get divorced, or get an adult, or whatever. I could not do that at all, because that is quite terrified but i do have one important question for you riley okay is the nasa sedan kumbo the key for turning the season around you know had you asked me this a week ago i would have been like you're crazy man come on we all know we all know the Nasus is the worst player on the team <sighs> after the week that just happens you have to really reconsider that maybe the heart and the soul of the team is the Nasus. and to his credit, even when he wasn't playing, if you watch the bench, he every literally every basket, he's up off his feet, like walking out onto the court to celebrate or whatever. So I want to give a shout out to Thanasis. Has a good attitude playing or otherwise. And he's still an awful basketball player. Let's not get that twisted up. He's still really bad, like <laughs> running into guys. He has good dunks. I like how hyped he gets. But um, I, I still think he's a negative basketball player. But from a like morale, heart and soul perspective, we got to give Thanasis a little bit of credit. He's helping keep us anchored when nobody else apparently wants to. Yeah, he really, he's not good, but he tries his best. You cannot question that. He will give it his all. He will do whatever he can to help the team win. It just might be detrimental at times helping the team win. But after the week that the Bucks had, it wasn't a coincidence that Milwaukee Bucks' best play of the week happened when Thanasis was on the court. 
So I'm just saying, first game last Sunday, the Milwaukee Bucks lose to Oklahoma City Thunder, 109-114. It was a bit of a sloppy game. It was the last game of their Western Conference road trip. Giannis had a triple-double, 24 points, 17 rebounds, 10 assists. Chris Middleton had 23 points, but he shot 10 and 22 from the field. Bobby Portis was the only notable bench player to do anything. He had 21 points and six rebounds. Bryn Forbes and Dante DiVincenzo both had double digits, and Dante even shooting five of seven for three. So, you know, you were thinking throughout the game, Riley, it's like the first, after the first quarter where it was just a sluggish game, you get to the second and third quarter, and it's just two completely polar opposites. In the second quarter, Milwaukee can't make a shot worth a damn. It looked like they were just coasting. And then in the third quarter, they dropped 40 points, but still end up losing by five in the fourth quarter. What were your thoughts on that game in particular? So this one I didn't actually watch live and I didn't even bother to watch in the back. So I watched like the final couple of minutes um, just because I saw everybody losing their minds. I was like, oh, this might be interesting to see whether or not we can close this. Everybody everybody loses. You have to wonder how much of it is. um, This is the last game on the two week two week road trip out to the West uh, playing a lot of pretty good teams. You don't have Drew, all that sort of stuff. Um, how much the guys were like, ah, who really cares? Well, we'll you know, win or loss, we're going to be back in Milwaukee, so it's not the end of the world. I, I think the thing that was most interesting, just looking back, looking at the box score, was um, this is one of the games where Bryn Forbes really, he, he doesn't like take over, but he ends up taking a lot of usage rate. I think he went like 6 to 17, at 17 shot attempts, 8 of them from 3. I don't know what he's doing, taking 11 twos, like... In watching the game, so you said Dante and Brent, and also Brooke Lopez only scoring one basket. What do you have? Two points? That's not good. But yeah. <laughs> for, I think what was most interesting this week was we had a game where DJ Augustine, we'll get to that later, what DJ gets in the starting lineup. But like in this one, one of the ideas we had earlier in the season was would you want Brent to start or would you want Dante to start? And it's been, I, I don't think these two guys can play next to each other because neither of them are a traditional like ball handler. Um, they're not really great at breaking down a defense necessarily, but when you watch this game, was it a lot of like Bryn Forbes, were they working actions to get him free or was he just kind of like decided to take the mantle on his own shoulders to like try and create offense? What, what was he doing there to get to 17 shot attempts, which seems like a lot for him. It, I mean, it's definitely a lot, 17 shot attempts, especially when, I mean, he took eight threes, so that's not a bad thing, but Early in the game, it was just looks from three that you wouldn't complain about. You know, it was good action. It was get him getting open shots. Fine, whatever. The second quarter is when it was more the, okay, no one can hit a shot. So I'm just going to try. And it was it was kind of more that in the second quarter where first quarter, okay, whatever. He's getting good looks. Second quarter, he can't hit. And no one can anything, so he's going to try and take it on himself. Third quarter, it was... More, I mean, that was probably him, and that's when him and Dante, I think, were at their best, which is weird because, yeah, I would agree. Both of them need a capable ball handler to play off of. I mean, Dante can do it, but he's not great at it. You know, Chris and Giannis can do it, but it doesn't help Dante that much, and it somewhat helps Bryn with at least with play with with Giannis. It was just a matter of this. I think this was more of a game of Milwaukee just underestimated their opponent. Because the Thunder didn't have Shea Gilgus Alexander. I think they, they didn't have George Hill. They didn't have Alexander. They didn't have, I think their only notable guys were Al Horford and uh, Lou Dort, which both of those guys are definitely NBA players, but you would think a team like that you should not have any issues with going against them. I mean, Mike Muscala was the backup center. Hamadou Diallo is like another guy. It's like there's guys that you know, but. I think Milwaukee just underestimated the Thunder and it's not like the Thunder necessarily outplayed them or did anything super well. I mean, they did hit 15 threes and shot 41% from three. So that, you know, the usual Milwaukee Bucks game, but it just felt as though no one played to the level that you would expect. And maybe it was because, you know, it's the last game of a Western conference road trip. You've been on the road for, like six games now you you want to be home you don't have drew holiday you've just taken a, you've gotten played off the gym again in utah days before maybe that was a contributing factor but it was 
it was definitely one of those games where Brooke Lopez didn't even close. Like when the game was close, Brooke Lopez was not in the closing lineup. They had Bobby Portis out there. Yeah, Brooke Lopez didn't play a single minute or a single second in the fourth quarter. So that's, I think that that was something that was also interesting as I saw people tweeting like, oh, they're not even using Brooke whatsoever. And I don't think that's necessarily an incorrect thing because Brooke didn't do anything the rest of the game really offensively. And I'm trying to look and see how many minutes Al Horford was playing in that. He played eight minutes. I mean, but Al Horford plays in such a spacing role that it makes sense where it's like, okay, well, you can try and utilize Bobby to either be like an offensive guy you can work around. And he did go three or five from the floor in the fourth quarter. Um, And in that situation, you don't have to necessarily worry about him having to do like navigate a drop defense or a ton of switching or whatever. So I think maybe that's part of the reason why they went with him. I don't know. I just think, yeah, I think part of it was Brooke was just not play well or not even being efficient or aggressive enough to make it work. Like he took three shots and only two points. And in a game where, yeah, they have Al Horford and Mike Muscala, but that's still something that Brooke should take advantage of. Mm-hmm. They did. The Thunder did go a little bit smaller. And I think that's kind of a theme in the Toronto Raptors games as well, is they went a little bit smaller. So sure, put Bobby out there. It makes sense. It was, I just think like it was more of a Brooke was not going to be efficient no matter what you try. So why bother even doing so? And I feel bad because I feel like Brooke has definitely been the target of fans ire the last few weeks um it's either him or dj augustine so now to kind of understand and see he's not playing at all in the fourth quarter you know they went with Giannis and they went with bobby portis which i think would have been the right choice but just to see brooks value and contribution to this team completely fall off a cliff this season it's a little bit concerning but i don't know it Milwaukee should have won that game in the end. Like they still were the better. They still had enough talent where that should have been a win. And I think Chris Middleton kind of made it kind of alluded to, they were not playing at the level that they should have, which I think was more of a, you were overlooking your opponent and got caught doing so. Yeah. But, and he also, I mean, credit to Chris. So he had a tough week overall. I think that that would be the other thing is he's struggled a little bit, either not being aggressive enough. In that fourth quarter, he did take 10 shot attempts, only made two of them, unfortunately. So it's a mixed bag with him, too, where because he's going through a rough patch right now, whether or not it just be like making shots or feeling confident enough to take the shots or try and like take over the way he was earlier in the season. But it, it, again, when it's a five point margin, just like another basket or two to kind of like either stabilize things or at least claw back into it. I don't know. And then like, as we said before, there, I don't know. We can also, we should also put a giant asterisk with what the episode title should be is like Drew's gone, ignore everything that happens. If you don't have Drew out there in these sort of closing sequences in a tight game like this, even if it's against a team that's, theoretically not as good talent wise um, in the thunder without shy Shay Gilgis Alexander or like just as an overall roster. If you don't have a guy like drew who he hasn't really impacted it as like, he's the last shot taker, but in those final closing sequences, instead of trying to figure out like, Oh, maybe Bryn is can like try and figure out the defense or Dante. I think he played the full fourth quarter. you're kind of hamstrung trying to get those final couple of possessions. And especially if Christmas is a couple of looks, then it's going to be it. So I I think that's the thing that we could discuss more at length, but for the most part, for a lot of these games, when it got close, it's like, you don't have drew and that's going to hurt you because either Chris is going to have to take the shot or you're going to have to rely on somebody else to try and like step up. And we just don't really have that talent necessarily. If drew isn't out there. Yeah, Milwaukee had chances to at least tie it. They were always, in the final like five minutes, they were always down two or three. And every time they seem to need a basket to tie it, they would miss. And then the Thunder would get a basket right back. And it was kind of, that was kind of the theme of the whole end of the fourth quarter was Milwaukee was always one shot away from tying it, but then the Thunder would make it a five or six point lead. And then someone in Milwaukee would make a shot and be a two or three point lead again. So really tough to do when, you don't have your third best player. And then things got worse with the losing streak. Milwaukee played. They returned home to Pfizer Forum. So we're thinking, okay, they're back home. Things are going to be okay. They had fans. How do you feel fans, about that? Fans in the stands. <laughs> yep. Yep. The 10% capacity of Pfizer Forum. So 
however you feel about that, but they had fans in the game and they lost both games to the Toronto Raptors. The first game, a 124-113 loss. The second game, a 110-96 loss. I feel like these two games were different, though, in terms of how Milwaukee, how Toronto played and how Milwaukee played and how why they lost. I think there are like two different circumstances to these games. Yeah, I would agree. So we can kind of talk about them. I mean, it is the same opponent. They were different. So the thing in like the first game that you really noticed was there was so much driving kicking going on from, from Toronto. The first half, if you just like sort of zone out and watch like the floor as a whole, it's literally just like, okay, Kyle Lowry, you're going to run in and then you kick it out. Okay, uh, Pascal Siakam, you're going to run in. You're going to kick it out. Uh, Fred Van Vliet, you're going to do the same. It's just over and over in the, the Bucks either because it's a switching issue or because um, you know, I think it might be a switching and just like trying to figure out again without Drew out there, they're not really getting it. And so you have the scrambling, like I said before, it's like Jason Kidd era-esque. It was like, okay, just run after guys as they whip the ball around the perimeter. And that just continued to happen over and over again. And like credit to the Bucks were able to keep it tied through the first half, but then there's just... I mean, it's literally, what is it, a, a nine-point or 11-point uh, difference? That really is just like a couple of baskets in the second half. So I wouldn't even say the the first Toronto game was egregious necessarily because besides having a lot of driver kicks, they, they kept contact for the most part. But then that fourth quarter, those final couple of possessions, it was weird because I remember re-watching. I was like, how did we lose this game? Because it was like a four-point game, I think, with five minutes left or something like that. And it was literally just... Not even bad looks, but like Chris, a couple of misses. And then like Pascal Siakam gets through contact or like weaves through the defenders and gets a basket or whatever. So it's like frustrating to watch because the first half is like, this is the worst execute, like really good execution by Toronto to like continue to just keep our defense in the back foot. And then in that fourth quarter, you were right there. But again, if you go back to like not having Drew, Chris is not as confident, but like a couple of baskets here or there and you're right back in it. But it was just, sort of poor execution where we don't not that good in half court offense, especially if you don't have Drew available, which I think is the difference, at least in the first game. Well, it was weird because in that fourth quarter, it was a lot of that driving kick, but you know, they're down. I think that it was at one point. Yeah. It was like a four point deficit, but then Fred Van Vliet made a three and then, okay, fine. Whatever. Giannis gets a dunk. Norm Powell then hits a three. Chris Boucher hits a three back on it. Like it was like as right at that mark, it was like every time Milwaukee got a basket, it seemed like Toronto was able to just respond with a three pointer. It was 112, 109 with like 536 left. And Milwaukee yeah. did not get another basket until the like two minutes. And those are a pair uh-huh. of Brooke Lopez free throws. Yep. Toronto then was able to get a dunk from OG on Nobi. They got a Pascal Siakam tip. They had a Fred Van Vliet three. They had a Chris Boucher three. Like, it was just like, that was the stretch where Milwaukee couldn't hit a shot. Everyone was struggling. Chris Middleton's turning the ball over. Chris Middleton was just not aggressive that whole first game. He only took, what, two field goal attempts, I think, in the first half, which, I mean, this was the Pat Connaughton quarter. Like, that's when Pat Connaughton suddenly became the best player in the whole league. Yeah. <laughs> it got up to 20 points. Shout out to Pat. Like, I mean, you can't get a 20-point performance with Pat Connaughton and lose that game. Like, come on now. That that felt like a waste. But it was more the frustrating part of the driving kicks eventually just started getting to – they got the ball to the right players for Toronto, and that's mm-hmm. when, you know, Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam and Norm Powell, everyone, and Chris Boucher, they were just hurting the Bucks from three. It seemed every time Milwaukee wanted to make a comeback, every time Milwaukee needed a stop. Toronto hit a three, and that explains when they why they went seventeen to forty three from three. Mm-hmm. And the Raptors in the previous game down in Toronto, not in Toronto, Tampa, they had shot a bunch of threes and they hit a lot of threes. But Milwaukee was able to get points to the paint. Milwaukee was able to get fast break points. At least to, that's why they won that game. On this one, they couldn't get the fast break points. They didn't get the points to the paint. I mean, they did, but it, was an, it wasn't an overwhelming amount to give them the key victory. So that was game one. Game two was game two was just the they got out hustled. They got outplayed. They looked like they did not look like a team that knew what they were doing. The main issue in in game two. So Kyle Lowry did not play because I think 
I couldn't tell if he tweaked like an ankle. I didn't see what his he was, but I know hurt his ankle in like the second quarter, and then like he the tried playing game. a little bit after halftime, but just couldn't continue. Yeah, so he was out, and so it's like okay, well, you don't have to deal with like Kyle Lowry because he's really good. That was the other thing in the first quarter is like either um, they did the driving kick or Kyle Lowry was doing a really good job of like exploiting the drop scheme where he was just hitting floaters left and right. Um, and, and there was the other thing as well, which was, this was constant in both games was like Pascal Siakam. He would get matched up on Brook off of like a switch and Brook would sort of drop, but then Pascal would just take it from like the elbow or whatever. And I don't know if he was necessarily like hitting a lot of those shots, but that was like, okay, this is a team who obviously understands that we're going to do the drop scheme and is taking advantage of it by either taking floaters or elbows or like driving and kicking or whatever. So that was consistent in both games in the second game. I would almost like give not credit, but I would maybe criticize the Bucks a little bit more because, for example, everybody was losing their minds again. Chris struggled when there was any sort of like double pressure, and in this game in particular, whether it be Brooke down low, Giannis down low, um, Dante between the Bucks schematically taking a lot of threes, and then the size and length that, I should say length, because they're not exactly like heavy dudes, but like a Chris Boucher, um, a Pascal Siakam, they have the length and like the hustles make, even if a guy like Brooke is way bigger than them, because they're link and they swarm whoever's in the paint. That was something that really stood out, was like the defense for the Raptors, swarming guys, putting pressure on Chris, and Chris struggling to like either keep the ball or pass out of it. Um but I thought there was just a lot of like, it was poor execution time and time again from Milwaukee that probably put them behind. Cause it's like either recognize a mismatch where Pascal Siakam is the biggest guy for the Raptors. And it's like, okay, Brooke is just going to keep bombing away from three. I don't, this is the difficulty with this regular season. I thought this game was especially because it's like, okay, yeah, they know that they can go to Brooke in the paint, but like, can they, like, should they practice that in game a little bit more in a game like this, where the biggest guy in the other team probably has like is 50 pounds lighter than your center. I mean, at least I would try maybe running Brooke in the dunker spot and he, he they just did. I mean, he took more shots from inside the two point or three point line, but I, I felt like it was a combination of like bad schematics and then just not being able to execute when Toronto showed a little bit of pressure, ball pressure on defense. That's that's was my main issue in the second game. The second game to me was kind of a Milwaukee made it made more of an effort to not allow Toronto to beat them from three, which is fine because they did a decent job. I mean, the Raptors were only twelve and thirty five from three, mm-hmm. so they did a better job at least making sure Fred VanVleet isn't going to get open looks. They're going to try and make sure that Chris Boucher is going to get open looks. Norm Powell decided to be Norm Powell again against the Bucs and mm-hmm. crushed them and had 29 points and shot four, seven for three. But at least Milwaukee was trying their best to not let that happen. But then it just allowed Toronto to just get bucket after bucket in the paint. They're hitting those mid-range shots. It It's like Milwaukee was trying to make sure they didn't allow Toronto to beat them from three, but they completely abandoned defending the rim at all. And I don't know why Bud decided to go with a three big lineup of Giannis, Bobby, and Brooke. When Pascal, I I don't even know if Pascal Siakam was out there, but it was like Toronto is not going big. Why are you deciding to go with three guys? You probably only need one of them. You mm-hmm. don't need all three. And I think and that was it was just that was the kind of thing that just baffled me because I don't know what the logic was, I don't know why they thought that was going to work. And I think that was kind of the more frustrating side of it. I mean, Giannis struggled, Chris struggled, but Toronto made it a point to double team both of them. And while Giannis was able to at least kind of get out of there and like make the passes to get the ball quickly, Chris was trying to, you know, make things work. At least in this game, he was trying to take those jumpers. He was trying to beat the guys off the dribble. It, it just didn't work out. It seemed like I said, that's why I say it felt like Mark is just out hustled and outplayed because no matter what the Bucks threw, bar a second, like a two or three minute stretch in the third quarter where Thanasis was on the court. It was like Giannis, Thanasis, Dante, Pat, and I don't know if DJ Augustine was out there, but it was like that was the four that was the lineup and they at least put in a fight. They tried trimming down the lead. It was weird 
but like like it's like we're saying, if that's what it's going to take for Milwaukee to have a chance, you're probably not going to win, and that's that's going to tough. I mean, Milwaukee still scored 31 points in the third quarter, so it's not like they were completely out of it at that point. They made they chipped their way back in, but by halftime, you just had the sense like they're not going to win this game. They're just not. It was kind of the same as the Utah Jazz game. It was like you get to halftime, they're like they're not going to win. It's just a matter of how how are they going to go about functioning the second half this week too so like i said earlier chris being poor during the week was sort of a a constant theme that was especially true when and i understand it's rotation so i don't really necessarily have like an issue with it but boonholes are still one with lineups where it's like chris and then it's just a bunch of subs and dj augustine we've talked before he's had kind of an on and off year so far with the Bucks. I think he had a decent game when he was a starter, maybe. DJ's pushing for a starting spot. We'll have to see. But if when it's down to like Chris, you're going to be the one that orchestrates things. And I think he had like six turnovers. <laughs> it's just a tough game for Chris. Um if he's not either like taking shots and the guys that he's stuck with are like Tory Craig, um Pat, uh I don't know if I don't think Bryn was maybe DJ Augustine. Like it's just kind of a weird amalgamation. Probably Bobby as well. He has options, but that's a sort of a strange lineup to try and like have him orchestrate and make things happen. And there was a lot of times I'd have to go see what those lineups are like, but there was a lot of times where he's out there with those guys. He had the worst plus minus on the team. Uh, that's probably because he was playing with those, you know, bench lineups. And when it's like Chris is already not playing well, and then you're trying to have him like also man a sub lineup, that's just not going to work well. And that those kind of minutes were probably what helped sink the Bucks too. Yeah, it was yeah, he was definitely not helped by having bench lineups. The second game he was not helped. The first game was just more I don't know what Chris was doing. He just didn't he just looked he was just passing through the motions. Like I said, only taking two field goal attempts in the first half is inexcusable for someone like Chris. I get that Pat Connaughton was shooting the ball well and he was hot. I get that Giannis was able to get to the rim at will in the first quarter, but you still gotta be able to get yourself more involved in the game. But the second game he was getting doubled and when you're with a bunch of bench guys they don't have to worry like the Raptors don't have to worry about those bench guys like yeah. okay if Pat Connaughton's open for three let him shoot it that's fine if Bobby Portis has it he's probably going to shoot it okay we can live with that we know Chris Middleton can hurt us we don't know we don't think the other four guys on the court can hurt so I think that was kind of it was just not a good week for Chris but it was a decent ending for the week for the Milwaukee Bucks and the final game on Friday, they won 98-85 to against Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, I will say that game was not pretty. <laughs> the Bucks first, won. First half sucked. First half was definitely a rock fight. It was two teams that it was classic Big Ten basketball where no one really <laughs> wins by watching it. You just have to yeah. accept that it happened. Um, yeah. But Giannis had 29 points and 19 rebounds, 8 assists. Chris, a little bit better of a game, 20 points. I mean, it was 7-18 for the floor, 1-5 from 3. But he, he at least shot the ball better. Brent Forbes went back to the bench, and DJ Augustine was the starter. So what are your thoughts on how DJ Augustine did as the starter with this unit? I'm going to go look right now to see. So he scored 11 points. Do you think that was his season high so far? Because oh, I think there's a possibility. He might have passed that in the Jazz game when he just lived at the free throw line in garbage time. But... <laughs> <laughs> I would have uh, to I check, thought, but I feel like that I feel like that jazz game was he got like 13 points and like he was seven and twelve from the free throw line or something. All right. So at some point this season he did score 13 points. I'm gonna go pull up, which I wonder if it was the jazz game. Let's find out. This is riveting. Oh, it was against the Warriors. It was the Christmas game where everybody, oh. everybody set a record <laughs> season high, so that makes sense. No, so DJ Oxy, I thought I thought it was actually really promising because this is the thing where we were talking earlier that Dante is not necessarily great if he doesn't have a guy who's going to structure the offense and neither is Bryn Forbes. And that's okay when Drew is available because even though Drew isn't necessarily like a traditional, he's going to walk it up. He definitely provides a lot more structure to the offense. We've talked a lot about his innate control, how patient he is, everything like that. Um, whereas Bryn, he's designed to like, you're going to get like, just catch and shoot or you're going to catch and like maybe dribble a couple times and then take a shot for yourself. He's not going to create for others. Dante's very similar where he's not like an excellent passer. He's a good cutter. 
he's his three point percentage is dropping, but like he's okay as like a support guy. And so it makes conceptual sense that DJ Augustine comes out, and it wasn't even necessarily that they were running a lot of the offense through him because there's still a lot of like Giannis drive and then kick to DJ Augustine. But I think just having the ability of like in the half court offense to have a guy who can somewhat control things more is like designed to have that role, whether that be with bench guys or like with the starting lineup. I I thought it was pretty good overall. There were still a lot of times where like he either like bad pass, he dribbled that out of bounds. So it's not like it was an excellent game, but all things considered, I thought it was a relatively promising experiment. And I think it calls into question, not that DJ Augustine should get into the starting lineup, but I kind of continue to wonder of between Brandon Dante, who would be the better like starting two guard next to a Drew type character. But credit to DJ, it was a decent game from when we've been used to really bad games throughout the season. What did you think? Yeah, he, I mean, he, this was his best game of the season, I think. It yeah, looked probably. as though, even though it was a rock fight in the first quarter, I wouldn't say that was <laughs> DJ Augustine's fault. I just think everyone was unable to do anything of value. But, you know, I the thing that made him or what we thought made him a really great signing in the summer was this is a guy that can be the pure point guard. He can run. He can run things. He can do it. On He can make it happen. And he wasn't able to do that mainly because most of the time he did it, it was in the bench. Maybe he's playing with a bunch of bench guys or, you know, he has one of Dante, not Dante, one of Giannis or Chris or Drew. How much are you really going to, how much of that is he just deferring when he drives to the, I mean, I would love if he stopped driving to the rim because, I mean, while he is getting to the free throw line a decent amount, he can't make anything at the rim. Um, But this is more of what we were expecting. Some kind of someone that can come in, he can chip in the points when he needs to. He makes, he makes the smart passes, or at least he tries to make the decisive pass, something that we haven't seen. I mean, but this offense, it kind of feels as though it's more of let's just hope someone do some, does something and we can react from there instead of trying to be proactive. Um, yeah. That, I think, was kind of promising. And I think – I still believe Dante is probably the better choice to start with when Drew is back just because yeah. the two of them defensively can cause enough problems for other teams. But it was encouraging to see that you know, I mean, Budenholzer tightened the rotation a little bit more. You know, Torrey Craig didn't play, unfortunately. Thanasis did, probably as a reward of going out there and hustling. But Milwaukee defensively was really, really good. And this was the best defensive performance we have seen from the Bucks since, uh, t- other than playing the Pistons, probably. Yeah. yeah, and like part of it, I think was let me go see what Al Horford shot here. So four fourteen from the floor, two and nine. So that was it was like anytime you see Al Horford out there, you, they know generally like you're either going to get burned or you're just going to let them like continue to miss from three. I, I thought they did a good job of they didn't have to switch a whole bunch. I thought Brooke Lopez did a good job, and I don't know if that's partially Oklahoma City not running a lot of actions to try and force switches if they just either experience or just schematically they don't want to do that. But I think because th- there's two things, either with a space spacing big like Al Horford, it helps because you don't have to ask Brook Lopez to do a whole bunch. But the issue is Brook Lopez isn't going to go out and defend that guy. And so if that guy starts hitting th- from three, a la Al Horford in the past, or like a Mark Gasol or whatever, all right, then you're in a tough spot because what are you going to do? You, you, you can't really have like Brook go out there necessarily. That's not what it's designed to do. But in this game, they whether it be like a bad shooter they identify you don't have to necessarily close out on this guy and they like mike muscala he went oh six from three it's generally a lot of like okay this big is going to pop and in this case they didn't make it and that when that sort of thing happens that feeds back into what the rest of the defense milwaukee is running and you're like okay well everything's working just fine because you're getting the bad shooter to take the three without necessarily compromising your interior defense to try and like cover that guy so part of it is them not making the shot, but once that starts happening, then Milwaukee can kind of continue to fall back on its principles, and then it makes it more difficult for everybody else to try and get shots off. Yeah, it makes it easier to kind of focus on one or two things. You know, as we saw against the Raptors, they were driving and kicking. As we saw with the Jazz, just a lot of ball movement. While with the Thunder, that's not necessarily the case. They Credit to them, they're not as bad as everyone expected them to be, but they're still not a good team, and it's kind of just Shea Gilgis, Alexander, 
doing whatever he can to try and salvage it. And I mean, he struggled as well. He was four thirteen from the field and only had 16 points, but Milwaukee really, it made it easier for Milwaukee when you don't have to worry so much about, you know, a lot of ball movement or off ball movement. They can focus on, you know, when they were switching, it was a lot easier to switch because you're not trying to switch, you know, two or three times within like seconds when you're doing the zone drop. Yes. You can have Al Horford and Mike Muscala kind of pick and pop, but you knew that was going to happen going in. So it gives you, it just made it easier for them to defend. And it did help out by the fact that Oklahoma city couldn't hit shots, but that third quarter, it wasn't until the third quarter. And was like, okay, this is the, this is the bucks. This is what we were expecting to see. They go on that run, open up the lead. Yes. They kind of let Oklahoma city back in it. Not too long after it, but it was, this was what we were expecting from them. This is they, we were all waiting for that one run to happen. And thankfully, it was like midway through the third quarter. They get that going to the fourth quarter with a sizable lead, which allows them because Oklahoma City is not able to hit any shots. They were able to defend better. They just seem more dialed in. And I think that was encouraging to see, especially after losing five games in a row and getting played off the floor the previous game You and you're at home. Like it was it was just good to see that this team still had the ability to find a way to win even when they're not playing well. Yeah, that third quarter, I believe at the start of the third quarter, in the first four minutes, Milwaukee scored like 14 points, and I think Oklahoma City scored either none, or I think Lou Dortz hit two free throws to like end the run or whatever. But that was, again, the starting lineup back out there. And part of it was DJ Augustine made some like crazy falling threes or whatever. I was like, okay, that's probably not going to happen all that often. But not still, sustainable. It was like, <laughs> no, but in this... I thought it was interesting in that in the start of the third quarter, it seemed like they were a little bit more deliberate of trying to at least get the ball up the court in DJ's hands. Um, I would, I don't know how you would even track this, but like trying to figure out Giannis starting a possession versus Chris starting a possession versus either a Drew or a DJ Augustine starting a possession. It's, it, I think the difference is that DJ Augustine is probably, besides Drew, one of the better passers in motion. Chris is a very good passer, either in transition, finding another guy, or like if he's in a standstill and finds another cutter somewhere else. I'm not sure if he's super great, like driving and then like lacing through a lot of guys. Giannis, we already know he loves running into dudes and like whipping balls at like 100 miles an hour. So he, he, he's better standstill as well. But DJ Augustine, the difference is, as you said, he's able to drive and make the smart or like difficult passes, at least get it to another guy to, you know help when an offense gets offset by his driving. And I thought the start of the third quarter that I'd be curious what the um, play-by-play would be on that. But it seemed like that was the main difference was like just really efficient through DJ, some tough shots as well, but like everybody got a little involved and just because OKC was not hitting their threes, it was like, okay, well that's once you get out to like a 14, 15, 16 point lead, um, the team was, the, again, talent disparity at that point, as long as Oklahoma City doesn't start making an insane amount of threes, it's pretty much enough to wrap it for them. Yeah, the start of the third quarter, Brooke Lopez gets a dunk. Then Giannis hit a three. Giannis gets a pull-up yeah, jumper. The, DJ Giannis hits three. a three. Giannis gets yeah. a dunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Chris yeah, Milton exactly. makes a pair of free throws, and then Dort made the pair of free throws to stop it. So, yeah, it was, it was a pretty sizable, nice little, what, 10 – 12 yeah 14 point run at the, to start and only ended because Lou Dort hit a pair of free throws but I mean even that Milwaukee is still able to get basket so yeah it was good to, it was just good to see and it kind of makes me think all right well you win you end your losing streak but now I mean the overall theme of this past week was the losing streak and coach bud now the avatars are out Unfortunately, we have decided to do that again. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> it was funny. Emma asked me, like, oh, do other teams do this? Like, do other teams go to this? I was like, no one goes to the extent to make the avatars, and no one goes to the extent to do this a second time. Mm-hmm. So, Riley, I guess I my first question I'm going to ask you is, what do you think went wrong in the losing streak that Milwaukee had? It's super lame, but I think missing Drew Holiday was sort of a big deal. <laughs> I don't want to, that's not everything. It doesn't necessarily excuse that Chris stepped back a little bit. Um, I thought Giannis was like, okay, throughout all the games. I wouldn't say he was, I mean, obviously his numbers are crazy, but there was no, in that losing streak, 
he had the triple double in the first Thunder game, so it's not like I would blame Giannis. I thought he had a decent week for him. I think the lack of Drew trying to figure out who else is going to be in the starting lineup and balancing that is probably what I would say is to blame. And also on top of that, if you want to go back to Budenholzer, you could. I thought there was even more evidence in the two Toronto games. It's like, well, Nick Nurse just kind of coaches around him, like schematically the way that they execute their defense, um, the seeming lack of like identifying mismatches and being willing to try like different things, even though they quote know they can do it, they that that they can go to Brook. I'd rather see them a couple of times throughout a game, like a throughout a season, try that, and so. I'd say without True out there to help organize the defense, the defense looked super lost even when they were still trying to do switching. And there's a lot of mismatches. And then Budenholzer just kind of sticking with the system to try and work through the kinks without necessarily trying to, in the moment, make an adjustment. That would be my two things I would point to is like those those are the big issues. Yeah, I mean, you really can't look at this losing streak and not acknowledge that Drew was hurt. It. And even then, it was like, if Drew's healthy, Milwaukee probably wins the Phoenix game. Mm-hmm. They probably win the first Thunder game. And maybe they win one of those two Toronto games. Maybe. I don't know. But they definitely weren't going to win against Utah. Like, that was never going to happen. Utah's playing no. the best basketball out there. I So I think people have to understand, like, you go out west, you play two tough Western Conference teams without Drew Holiday. You're not – it's going to be hard to win. Yes, they should have won the first Thunder game. The Toronto games, Nick Nurse just coaches circles around Budenholzer. I think we've learned that now for the last three years now that Nurse is just a better coach. Uh-huh. It's kind of like the same thing with playing the Miami Heat. It's just like Spolstra is going to coach. He's going to out-coach Budenholzer. It didn't help that Chris didn't play well. It doesn't help that, you know, Brooke Lopez defensively is not there. The bench is very erratic. Like you, some games you get Pat Connaughton hitting 20 getting 20 points. Some games you have Bobby Portis play well. Other times mm-hmm. you don't really get anything else. So I think it's just tough to kind of look at it. And everyone wants to say, well, the defense is bad and the defense is awful and this and that. They're trying to switch. I mean, we expect the defense not to be good. Like it's going to happen. They're trying to switch. They're trying to do all these new things on the fly. It was that. And like the personnel that they have, is just not great on defense. This isn't last year's team or even the first Budenholzer team where that team at least you can look and it's like, this is a good defensive team. This year's team is, this is a good enough defensive team. If they can go, if they can have like a five minute stretch to be competent and the offense does what it needs to do, then Milwaukee can win most of its games. But it was really, the offense was the part that struggled in this losing streak. It seems like, you know, in against Phoenix, it was okay, but you know, there are definitely stretches where they go cold and Oklahoma against both games against the thunder. It was an ugly rock fight for a good amount of time. For the first Toronto game, they go cold at the end. The second Toronto game, they can't do anything in the second quarter. It just seems like their offense is not playing at the super, super high level that we had gotten used to throughout the year. And because of that, and their defense not being good enough, and they're trying to do all these things, and that's just completely falling apart at times, it makes things worse. And I don't know. Like I, I feel as though this losing streak, while it's not fun, it's not enjoyable, it kind of was expected, don't you think? A little bit. Between the personnel issues and then schematically, if they weren't going to try and like go back to a base defense without, if they wanted to continue to try and make something new happen, you know, they <laughs> they struggled even when Drew was out there trying to direct the entire defense. Like having him back in there, it just tinkering with things is going to be difficult. I think it's concerning that we're now you know almost 30 I think it's like 30 games into the season and the switching defense still isn't really happening I I think the main issue I'm seeing here is like especially for Brooke Lopez he seems to be uh out on an island he's in no man's land between these two schemes right so he's not good at switching he just not does not have like the foot speed and that was the thing against like Toronto like some of the mismatches you get like oh Jesus you're like okay it's going to be Brooke trying to guard Pascal Siakam out on the perimeter. Like, good luck with this. And that, that would happen with, like, guards. It would happen with fast, like, wings. It's a tough spot for Brooke to be in. I don't blame him. I don't think it's necessarily even that he's lost a step. Um, it, it 
it does feel like it was really bad in the Toronto games. Like even when he was around the rim, guys were scoring relatively easily. So I'd be I'd look into that a little bit, but I think he's in no man's land between a system that demands like either he do the drop thing or he switch and he's not equipped to switch. And if he's like thinking maybe switch, but he doesn't really commit to the drop scheme, that all that sort of stuff, that's a really tough spot for him to be in. I don't know how you solve that though. That's that's my my longer term concern would be that we have a def, a base defense and then a switching defense that we're working into that I'm not sure Brooke is capable of like executing at a high enough level to help you out. Now, the other issue is I'm not sure if Bobby Portis is that guy either. Uh he gets a little lost in space still. He's he's better equipped as we've talked about to switch cuz he's he's quicker, he's a little more agile. But even then, he'll get like just he'll stop paying attention or he'll do a little too much ball watching. And then all of a sudden his guy is like scoring or is in the paint. And so I don't know if he's the solution. I don't know if the solution is trying to run Giannis at the five. So there are longer term issues, but if you were to be like this five game losing streak, I think there were things that you could point to and say, this isn't going to be forever. And there are still attempts to try and do something new, which we all asked for. Um, I don't think I mean, we can get right to it. I don't think Budenholzer is getting fired this year so long as the team doesn't straight up quit on him. Uh, I think the team is willing to let him try and tinker with things and see if that'll pay off in the playoffs. Um, I know that was the other thing everybody was asked for is like, oh, is Budenholzer going to get fired? I don't think that's going to be the case. Um, I think there was too many extenuating circumstances. It doesn't excuse the fact that we got coached around by Nick Nurse again, but if you wanted to give him a lifeline, that would be what you would hand to him. Yeah, I think the lifeline is he didn't have Drew Holiday. So you can chalk up <laughs> yeah. a lot of the issues of, we didn't have Drew Holiday, so once he gets back, things will at least be better. I I also don't I don't think he's going to get fired because I don't think Milwaukee, A, believes that Darvin Ham is going to fix the issues that currently plague Milwaukee. Because, I mean, Darvin Ham's going to run the same offensive scheme. Darvin Ham's probably going to try and do the zone drop and do some switching. The only thing you would really hope is can Darvin Ham make the in-game adjustments fast enough and better than what Budenholzer is currently doing, which I don't know. I don't know what kind of coach Darvin Ham is. Yeah. I am indifferent. Like I don't, I'm not going to say, yes, I want Budenholzer fired. I can understand the arguments that people are having. It's, you know, if someone says this team has reached their ceiling, we know that the ceiling of this team is probably an Easter conference finals. Maybe if you get lightning in the bottle, you can make the finals, but we we've seen what the ceiling is and we don't think Budenholzer is that coach to take it to the next level. The zone drop scheme has been figured out. The offense is still too stagnant at times. It kind of over relies on Giannis and Chris being really, really good. I get those arguments. I don't disagree with it. I also get the arguments of, well, is there a better coach out there right now? Maybe. I don't know. Is it worth going to Darvin Ham? These is it really Budenholzer's fault when he is trying to make the adjustments that we are all crying for and the Bucks just suck at it? That, so I guess I'm indifferent on it. I don't think he will get fired just because unless things get drastically worse, which I don't foresee happening, <laughs> hopefully. And I now feel like it jakes it. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. I just yeah. I I get the discussion around it, but I think it was they were losing. Bucks fans don't like losing. They don't like losing to Toronto, especially. And they don't like feeling as though they should be better than maybe we actually are. Yeah. I don't know. If they, if for whatever reason, if the Bucks did fire Budenholzer, they'd be like, I get it. That's, you know, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, Another thing we have to consider is when you have a guy like Giannis, and Giannis is obviously a excellent player, um, and there's a reason why everything should run through him. But as a coach, if I think it would be somewhat difficult to try and figure out year over year how to come up with new looks to incorporate him because he's a ball dominant guy. He does a lot of driving inside, and I don't think. It's, this is not to say that you shouldn't work around Giannis, but I think there are unique challenges of like building an offense around him that doesn't stagnate from time to time because Giannis is going to be looking there multiple times. Either whether it be like the walk up uh, heat check three that nobody asked for, and or like 
the like, I'm going to stare a guy down, dribble out here on the perimeter and like try and drive. The, the offense by definition, like a five, no matter what you were doing, I guess you could have guys like just running around the perimeter. But for the most part, you're going to have a tough time doing something like new around that. And part of it then is like, well, Giannis has to continue to develop what he's able to do. Chris earlier this this year, like he took everything he was all already very good at and took it to another level, whether it be like energy wise, attacking the basket, whatever. And so all those things kind of combine together and you're like, well, any coach that comes in here is going to have a tough time because Giannis is who he is right now. And he hasn't really grown necessarily in the ways that we would like to, to unlock an offense per se. And so it's not that I necessarily like, oh, well, then you have to give Budenholzer all the benefit of the doubt. But I think that's another difficulty is like with the personnel, the stars that you have, your hands are a little bit tied as to how creative you can get um, and still be effective with that guy or really get him involved. So I think that's difficult to um, not to say that another coach couldn't figure it out, but that's that's another problem they're trying to work through as well. I don't yeah, know. I mean, I don't another feel- coach could figure it out. I just don't know what coach that's going to be. <laughs> Yeah, me neither. I, I, I don't know. I really... like, you go. It's because I got asked this on the Reddit AMA. It was like, okay, well, who would you want to come in right now to replace Boone Hall? I was like, I'm just trying to think who's available. Like, David Fisdale isn't working to my knowledge. Like, call him up, I guess. Like, he mm-hmm. might be the guy, but he also hasn't. I mean, he got fired from the last two jobs. Granted, one of them's the Knicks, and they just are a mess. But... Yeah. I don't know, David Fisdale, like Dave Jorger, he's an assistant at Philly. Is he is Philly going to let him leave halfway through the season to go to a conference rival? Probably not. Becky Hammond, same thing. Are the Spurs going to let her leave halfway through the season? Yeah. I don't think so. So it's kind of like a yeah. you're stuck with Darvin Ham until the end of the season, and then I don't know. Now, if they wanted to fire Budenholzer in the offseason, yeah, go for it. No problem with that. If the Bucks yeah. underachieve yeah. again, yeah, I feel like Boonholzer probably has to go in the offseason, but midseason, I just, I'm not there yet. This isn't like Jason Kidd where it was toxic. Like, it was just like a toxic environment. Yeah. Like, it seems as though Boonholzer still has the players on his side. It seems as though Boonholzer at least is not just throwing people under the bus. It just seems like things aren't working, and he, he's trying to do things and they're not working. Jason Kidd was over here blaming everyone yeah. but himself. And he had, and he had to go. <laughs> but I also yeah. think, like the roster. I, I, but I do get where everybody. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the same. Like the roster itself. I mean, if we're going to be mad at Boonholzer for all these problems, we also should look at John Horace because you gave Brook Lopez his contract, and now Brook Lopez is a no man's land. You had you gave DJ Augustine his contract, and DJ Augustine has not started off well. You don't really have much flexibility. You have no assets to really try and trade to upgrade. I know everyone wants to trade Brooke. Okay, who are you trading Brooke for? I don't know who's out there right now that's going to be better. Maybe P.J. Tucker, but does Houston even want that? You want to trade Dante. Okay, but what two guard are you going to find out there that's going to be better? A clear upgrade to Dante that you can trade for and is, av- like, and is available. I don't know. Maybe you can upgrade on DJ Augusty. That's the only one. But a lot of like a lot of the things that people want in terms of trading Brooke, trading Dante, getting a better roster – I don't know where they're. I don't know how they're going to do that right now because they don't have assets. They have no first round picks. They have no good young assets besides Dante. Like Jordan War might be their second best young asset. That's not great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I get where everybody's coming from. Where when you this was sort of like the kid situation. Like I said, it's different insofar as kid was a straight up cancer, like culturally for the team. It was just not a good situation. I understand where people are like, well, it, this feels like the final ride. It feels a little bit like Budenholz are somewhat of a dead man walking until we get to the playoffs. And so when teams reach that state, I think there's a level of like, well, are we going to just rip the bandaid off or we're just kind of waiting around for like the right time. And that's frustrating to fans. I understand why that is. Um, But like you said, it it, part of the other thing too, is if you bring a coach in was Ty. So for the Cavs was Ty Lue, did he come in from outside the organization after they fired Blatt? Do you remember? No, he was an assistant. He was there already. No, he was an assistant there. Okay. So like, you, I don't know. I don't think teams bring in whole new coaching stuff. So it would definitely have to be like Darvin Ham. And so, like, if he had new ideas, 
you think it's hard enough for like Boonholzer to have tried to put in something without a training camp, trying to like do any sort of meaningful changes that people would respond well to as fans from like a watching perspective in this season, in this particular season would be almost impossible. And so we're all stuck in like this. Nobody's really happy with like the fact that the changes aren't coming along all that well. Um, and that like Drew is gone and that there's, so there's just like all these things that are stacking up, but I don't think it's dire enough at this point that you don't say we'll go into the postseason. We'll see after a whole season of Boonholes trying to put this together, whether or not it happens, and then we'll evaluate from there. So as, as long as the players don't turn on him, if Drew decides that he's willing to sign the extension, I think that's the next big hurdle. Once that's taken care of, then you have Giannis, Drew, and Chris. You have them locked up. Then you can start thinking about, as the season goes on, who could be like the next coach if we don't think Budenholzer is the answer. And so that's not um, satisfactory to fans. I understand why that's the fact, but um, I, I think that's probably going to be their game plan is let's get Drew, S- Drew's signature on an extension and we'll work it out from there. Um, and, and the best you can hope for is when Drew returns, he's able to stabilize things enough on both ends of the floor and continue that forward progress that we have seen flashes of. I mean, we have seen okay times. And then the roster construction, like I said, I don't even know where you begin with that. That's going to be a tough task. But let's get the Drew thing figured out. Then we'll work on the roster and the coaching staff and everything. The biggest thing right now is can you convince Holiday to stay? So I don't know. It's a weird spot for the fan base to be in. I get it. Yeah, I I mean, I also feel like sometimes it's just fun to get on the Firebutt Avatar train and get on that. Sure, why do not? Think, do you think the Avatars, they're, not... they're, they're worse designed than the Jason Kidd ones, right? I thought the Jason Kidd Avatars are really good. The oh, it's much are, worse, yes. Like, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we agree on that. No, it's like they took the it's like they took the kid avatar and just put Bud's face in it, but it looks worse. Like no, the kid one, the fire kid avatar. I will admit it was a work of art. <laughs> I feel like the Budenholzer one was just someone like I'm gonna take this and just put Budenholzer's face and get the message across. Like it could have been better. He's got like a current. We are gonna face. take a. It's really, it's really badly designed. It's not good. No, yeah, we'll work it's on. Not we'll good. workshop it over the All Star break. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, while someone figures that out, we're going to take a quick break, uh, have some ads, and we will be back. All right, so we are back. We are not going to do a rapid fire because, I mean, Riley and I could just talk about off-the-wall things, but I feel like we covered that in the first section of the area. So I will jump straight into a film review. And a few weeks ago, I watched The Princess Diaries. The movie with Anne Hathaway. <laughs> Riley and I had a discussion. We were trying Thank to figure you. out which was which. <laughs> but good. It's just a Between simple movie. Would we decide Princess Bride? Princess, Princess Bride, Bride the was the other one. one. About. So for those at home, Princess Diary is the one with uh, Anne Hathaway. I always get that confused. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a solid movie. I mean, it's kind of a this girl doesn't realize she's royalty and then like gets a visit. Like, oh, hey, you're a princess of this European country that has accents from all over Europe. Like some people are speaking an Italian accent. Some people are speaking in a British accent. Some are in a Spanish and French. It's just a very interesting country. I feel like it's, it's very, it's a melting pot. Good for them. Good for them. But <laughs> yeah, she realizes she's a princess goes through all this training. Just, and then she has to decide she wants to be queen. And I don't know. It's a very simple movie. I, I feel as though, with the cast that it has, like you have Julie Andrews and Anne Hathaway, you're probably going to be in a good shape to make a good movie. But it's funny because you watch that and then you watch the sequel and it's like, oh, now they got money. Now they got a lot of money from Disney to actually like get people. And like Chris Pine's in it. <laughs> Raven Simone was in it. Like there's like, oh, that, now you have money to like do something with this. So no, Prince's Diaries, solid movie. I don't know. It's very simple. I give it a six and a half out of ten. That's that feels correct. So the it's the kingdom, the European kingdom of Genovia, which is that's a hell of a love that. That's good. So I'm confused. So the character's name, Anne Hathaway's character's name is Mia. And it says here mm-hmm. that Mia's estranged father passes away and she's visited by her by his mother. So her grandmother, Clarissa. Clarice? How do you pronounce that? What does she go by? Clarice. Okay, so Clarice. So 
does Anne Hathaway's character know she's royalty? Or like, is this just a total, like, I had no idea. Not until, <laughs> not until the grandma shows up because, so here's what happens. Like, so Anne Hathaway's parents, they were together, but then he's next in line for the throne. So okay. then he decides, you know what? I'm not going to abdicate. I'm going to go and eventually be king. Like, that is what I'm going to do. So then they split. And and Hathaway's like that character's mom takes Anne. They live in San Francisco, have a good life, mm-hmm. like just live a normal life. But then Anne Hathaway's dad dies. So mm-hmm. now there's like this power vacuum. It's like, OK, well, the heir is dead. So technically it goes to his daughter. But she doesn't mm-hmm. know like she's going to be like she does. She has no idea until her grandmother shows up. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm the queen. You're a princess. <laughs> That's that's interesting. I did like it's the old family circuit, like, oh, by the way. It's oh, they had like Sandra O. Oh. I mean, you're right that the 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 credits here, not exactly like star studded, but it got some decent figures in here. Julie Andrews, she she's decent. Uh, you know. I, I've never I think I've seen like five, ten minutes of it total, and I was like, this is fine, but I'm not sure if I would go out. Six and a half though, from the five minutes I saw, that fe- that feels roughly correct. It's a movie where you can just – you can put it on, sit down, have it on in the background. You don't need to follow it that closely. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's why I gave it a six and a half. It's like you don't need to follow it super close to understand what's going on. Yeah, I'm looking here now at Prince's Diaries 2. Uh, do you think there was a three? Was there room for a third Prince's Diaries film? I don't know if there was. If there was, it's it was not like- on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and guess that it's not existent then. So okay, that's all right. Princess Diaries. Maybe I'll maybe I'll convince Catherine to watch it. Maybe she'll be into that. Yeah, Emma loves it, so she put that on while Sterling was running around causing chaos. It was like, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> that's that works for us. So <laughs> that is my film review. Riley, it looks like you have a an ink. I take it. I do have an ink. Yes, yes. So we are. It's been a while since we last had one of my Robert Oster from the care package that he sent. Um, very fine gentleman that's uh, this week we have the Sydney Darling Harbor. I'm guessing I'm not Ooh. pronouncing that with the correct like uh, Australian accent, but let me see. People at home can't watch this because we're not on YouTube, but I'm going to show Kyle. Let's see here. Uh, it's not really all that good lighting, but it's like a blue green, uh, probably more on the blue. It's almost like a gray blue green. Um, if that's what the harbor okay. water looks like, I'm not sure if I would swim in the harbor water, but I don't generally want to swim in harbor water anyhow, so I'm not going to give a, you know, necessarily. I can confirm being there in person, I would not swim in it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'd say it's more on the blue side, but yeah, I wouldn't swim in it. That's for sure. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I think this color, one of the difficult things with a lot of like trying to find found pennings for me personally is I use them for actually like writing purposes and so you could go with like a traditional black but generally you want to go with some darker colors so like oranges and yellows and things like that don't work and sometimes blue can be hit or miss depending on how light it is this is the right amount of gray to make it useful for like actually writing stuff out and in in this new pen that i got the lamy that i talked about last week it flows really well i've used it in like the journal um it's a little like wet for my taste which isn't the end of the world because it gives a lot of depth to it but i've liked it a lot um this is one of my like first blues that i've gotten and i've enjoyed it so far so uh sydney darling harbor i'd give it like a out of 10 i'd give it like a seven seven and a half pretty good characteristics all right we love sydney darling harbor i we love it we gotta love it but they're gonna be one of our sponsors in the future (laughs) sydney darling harbor hopefully (laughs) Hopefully. And then last but not least, we're going to do our predictions. This, I feel like this is a get right week for Milwaukee tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we're recording, they play the Sacramento Kings. Um, that is at home. Then they play the Minnesota Timberwolves at home on Tuesday. And then Thursday, they play at home again against the New Orleans Pelicans. So, Riley, what are you thinking for predictions this week? I think they will go two and one. I think they will be able to beat the Kings. I think they will beat the Timberwolves, even though Anthony Edwards might have a good dunk. 
but we'll have to remember that he has a really bad box plus minus. So that's going to, that, that'll put a, a damper on anything. And then I think we'll lose against the Pelicans, um, another Eric Bledsoe revenge game. And it, it's still unclear when Drew is going to be back. Um, that He was active, I think, against the Thunder, but that was simply because they needed enough bodies to be like active, available or whatever to play the game. Um, and so two and one, I think the Pelicans are decent enough that if you still don't have Drew at that point, you, you might struggle. So that's going to be my guess. I'm going to say three and oh, I'm, I feel like the Kings, they should win. And I feel confident in that the Timberwolves, they have played competitive lately, but not enough to convince me otherwise. And Nate Duncan, you need to get shoved back into a locker. Don't just <laughs> let people enjoy their dunk. Um, but the Pelicans, I, I'm going to say they win because the Pelicans play the day before. So they're going to be on a back-to-back. They're going to be at home against the Pistons, and then they come to Milwaukee. So I think that will give Milwaukee a slight edge. I also feel as though Milwaukee got embarrassed the last time they played them, so they're going to want to get revenge on them for that. So I'm going to say 3-0 and for the week. Okay. Do you think one final question before we sign off? Do you think people are mad now when the Bucks win, or is it kind of like a grudging? Like, a, because I think there is a segment of the Firebud community that is rooting for the losses at this point to force Boonholzer out. Do you think it's one of those situations where wins are just kind of like grudging, like, ah, eh, okay, whatever, I guess? I don't think so, just because. I think everyone's in the opinion that Boonholzer is probably going to get fired in the offseason. So now it's just like, okay, we're just waiting for that day to happen. And maybe it doesn't happen next week, but it's going to happen in June. I think that's where everyone's at. Mm-hmm. This, Like I said, this is not like kid where we were actively hoping, like, please lose so we can just be rid of this guy. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's probably a different dynamic. So hopefully I would prefer they still win. So 2-1 and one or 3-0, and oh, I'll take all the wins they get. Yeah, I also would hope. I also like it when the Bucks win. It makes things a lot better, not only for Bucks fans, but just for me in general. And I care about me. <laughs> so with yeah. that, we appreciate you listening. Please make sure to check us out on brewhoop.com. Riley's got his Monday morning media roundup. Adam's got his Wednesday pieces going on. Mitchell and I'm not going to use his name, but Van, I'm just going to go with that. They're going to have some pretty cool stuff coming around the pipeline and Gabe and Andrew do a great job at recapping matches. So make sure to follow them as well. You can follow us on brew hoop on Twitter, where apparently when I tweet, they lose. So maybe I'll just stop doing that and make sure to like subscribe and rate us five stars and have a good day.